0: Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Be reading from Galatians. Chapter 5, the first six verses, 1 through 6. This is powerful stuff. Let it sink in. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul... For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love.
1: Please be seated. Thank you, Mike. We are beginning our study of Galatians. I'm not quite sure how long this will take, but I trust it will be of tremendous value. As I've begun looking at Galatians again, I am confronted by the weightiness of what it says. My desire is not to exceed the text. My desire is to stay true to what the Apostle tells us, what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul tells us in the study of Galatians. My desire is not to exceed the text, but I equally do not wish to say anything less than the text. And I believe that Galatians, as we will see, is calling us to some incredible truths, even as Mike read Galatians 5.1 the weight of what that text tells us for freedom christ indeed has set us free stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery what exactly is the apostle paul speaking to in this text paul is referencing this idea as we will see he's asking the question is jesus enough or is there something more is there something else do we need more and I believe the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians will tell us that Jesus Christ is indeed enough. I've asked others how we might communicate the book of Galatians because Galatians seems to be pitting the works of the law against faith in Christ. And we would call those things uh, toxic pairing. Uh, but we are aware of these kinds of things uh, throughout life. Most of us have told our kids, don't eat yellow snow. Yellow And snow don't seem to go together. It won't kill you, but it's something that perhaps you should not do. We have had those jelly beans that look like jelly beans and then they tasted like barf or they tasted like dirty socks. And I ask myself, well, who was the one that first tasted a dirty sock to know what it tasted like? Uh, The pairing itself is inappropriate. The pairing, however, is not toxic. It won't kill you. Perhaps might wish you dead, but it won't kill you. The same is true with reference to toothpaste and orange juice it is strongly suggested and there's an actual reason why you should not drink orange juice after you brush your teeth uh, It's not a good thing. I've never done it. Perhaps I'm now curious as to what it is uh, We also say that oil and water do not mix but those mixtures are not toxic Someone suggests that you can't take vinegar and bleach and combine them. It has a, it's a bad idea. It releases a, a toxic chlorine gas And perhaps you're aware of this, perhaps you accidentally have done it. Now, I can look at orange juice and toothpaste, I can look at water and oil, I can look at yellow and snow, and I can say, well, I don't believe you, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyways, I'm going to see if it tastes like lemonade. I can deny the reality that vinegar and bleach combined produce a toxic chlorine gas, but let's see. Okay. Now that this is this is water. When I said this to my wife she's now now don't do it. <laughs> she knows me well doesn't she? <laughs> you responded all too quickly to that. I would be it would be immoral for me to do this in front of the church or in a classroom with kids. The combination of bleach and vinegar is toxic. Paul, as we will see in Galatians, says that the works of the law and faith in Christ is a toxic pairing. A toxic pairing. And for us as a fellowship or for us as individuals to do that is immoral. So what does Paul mean by all this? Because it appears as if Paul is in dead earnest... In writing the letter to the Galatians. So, what exactly is taking place? Our opening study is an introduction. So, we're not necessarily bound by a particular text. I'll be referring to multiple passages within the book of Galatians before we settle in to looking at the various paragraphs. When did Paul write? The book of galatians it's suggested that the apostle paul wrote it as early as 45 to 48 a.d he was it's after acts 13 but prior to acts 15 paul's on his first missionary journey when he plants the church some would suggest that paul is actually writing the book of galatians after acts 15 in the 50s what i found interesting especially in light of uh, mike's study last week is simply this It's either being written in about 45 AD or it's being written during the 50s. And either way, it was only a very short time after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're talking about a decade or two after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even though only a handful of decades had passed, they were already beginning to abandon the gospel. And remember, one of the lines we made last week was simply this. An assumed gospel becomes... A distorted gospel and a distorted gospel is a different gospel which is not a gospel at all so after a very short period of time regardless as to whether it was during the 40s or the 50s the Apostle Paul writes to the Church of Galatia and they were already beginning to defect from the gospel the assumption that we make and I believe Galatians lays it out for us well is that the gospel is a knowable entity We can know what the gospel is and that gospel is to be guarded. It is to be protected But where is galatia just to show you visually where it is Galatia is this province and we're familiar with the seven churches of revelation. We're familiar with books like ephesians Philippians colossians. We're familiar with a book like titus, which is written to the people of crete the small island down at the bottom of the page. Well, with Asia Minor, then Galatia, the province, all of that is modern-day Turkey. All of that is modern-day Turkey. That's where the Apostle Paul, during his missionary journeys, began to plant churches. He preached the gospel. Churches were planted. He preached the gospel. Disciples were made. They were gathered, and churches were planted. So a short time after the Apostle Paul began planting churches throughout Asia Minor, there was this massive defection from the gospel. And as Mike has pointed out last week, it is something that is chronic to our condition. We are always defecting from the gospel. We are always adding to or taking away from the gospel. This is what's happening. To whom does the Apostle Paul write the letter of Galatians? Well, there's two, as it were, recipients. The first is the church proper. There's a congregation to which the Apostle Paul wrote, in many ways just like us. There's a gathered assembly, they receive a letter, and this letter is then read to the church. There are also those who were bringing in a false message. There were these false teachers. So there is a twofold aspect as to to whom the Apostle writes. He writes to the church, and he is, in a sense, writing to or against these false teachers that we're coming into the church. Now, what does Paul say about the church? Listen to the language of the Apostle Paul in this short letter. And we pick up on that urgency or sense of importance by the fact that the Apostle Paul makes no commending comment to this church. Where in every other letter that the Apostle writes, he commends the church. And remember, when we talk about the Corinthians, how do we describe them as the carnal Corinthians and yet he commends the Corinthians yet here in Galatia there is no commendation he writes with a sense of urgency and why because there was a defection taking place concerning the gospel so notice how he speaks to the church proper notice how he describes them beginning in chapter 1 verse 6 the apostle asks the question why have you so quickly deserted the gospel. Now, the apostle Paul had planted the church. It had been a very short time between the planting of the church and the apostle writing the letter. And within that short time span, they were already beginning to defect from the gospel. Why are you so quickly deserting the gospel? Chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 1, the apostle says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you You feel and hear this sense of urgency. Chapter 4, verse 9. How can you turn back again? Chapter 2, verse 13. Notice, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So he's writing to a church that is beginning to defect from the gospel. And he writes to them with these types of questions. Why are you so quickly deserting the gospel? Who has bewitched you? Why are you turning back? Look at chapter 4, verse 16. How is it that when I came, you treated me one way, but now I have become your enemy by telling you the truth, by calling you back to the gospel, by pointing out your defection, I have now become your enemy? Chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And then in chapter 5, verse 7, the apostle, in addressing the church, makes the statement, you were running well. Now, the assumption that we can make, which I will point out throughout Galatians, it's not just dealing with one's justification as to how one gets saved, but sanctification, the Christian life. What that looks like after one is saved. And the apostle Paul says to the church, you were running well. You had embraced the gospel. What has now happened that you are defecting, why are you now not obeying the truth? Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? This is the congregation. This is the church to whom he writes. So the Apostle Paul says the church is planted. The church is growing. It's established. And within a very short window of time, the church begins to defect. What happened? Well, you have what has been called Judaizers coming to the church. They were telling people within the church... That they were to live like a Jew. They were to be circumcised. But the text we just read in Galatians 5 says, if you submit as it were to circumcision, you have forfeited or abandoned the gospel. You have been severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Now, for any of us, we would say that is strong language. But the Apostle Paul says the gospel is something that we are to guard. It's something that we are to, in a sense, maintain. And when we bring anything else into it, we have defected, we have distorted, and we have now preached a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. We call these people who have brought the false message Judaizers, and we are not always sure what they are. Are they legalists? Are they works righteousness type people? But regardless of what they are, they were distorting the gospel. And Paul says, as we will see, they are to be accursed. And as Mike pointed out, they are to be condemned. They are to go to hell. Now, in our pluralistic culture, those are strong words. And yet Paul says the gospel is something that is so precious that when we see its distortion, we are hearing a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. That's how strong the language is. They were distorting the gospel, and they were to be accursed. Those who adopted Jewish religious practices are sought to encourage others to do so, to influence them. But what is this idea that seems an affront to the gospel? Well, you've heard it often, and the biblical basis for what we teach is sourced in Scripture. And when you come to a book of Galatians, it is so clear But these Judaizers were saying that Jesus is necessary, but he is not enough. They were saying, in addition to Jesus, you now have to be circumcised. And Paul says, if you submit yourself to circumcision, you have now been severed. And notice the irony of what he says. You have now been severed from Christ and you have fallen from grace. That's how severe this distortion of the gospel was For the apostle paul these judaizers were suggesting and think about what's being said these judaizers were suggesting and teaching that there are things whether it's circumcision or any aspect of the law there are things that you must do as a gentile if you are going to be right with god we have that same kind of idea present today god does his part only if you do yours If you work hard enough, if you check off the right boxes, you can be saved. But it went beyond just that. They are telling the congregation there are things you must do if you are going to be right with God and or maintain a rightness with God. Yes, Jesus is enough to get you in, but until you are circumcised, you will not stay in. He got you in, but he isn't big enough to keep you in the work of Jesus is not sufficient, it is not adequate it is not enough it isn't finished. that is what they are saying. they are strongly suggesting and teaching that you can work for your salvation and your sanctification God they are suggesting and teaching will do his part if you do your part, but if you do not submit. To the act of circumcision, you will not be right with God. That is what they are teaching. If you do not obey law, you cannot be right with God. But listen to how the Apostle Paul speaks to this idea. Is Jesus enough or do we need more? Listen to what the Apostle says in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. The Apostle says, but even if we, even if I were to, as it were, distort this gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be condemned. Let him be accursed. As we said before, verse 9, so now I say again if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Again, an assumption is made by the apostle, and I think it is very clear in Galatians, that the gospel is a knowable entity. Can we know the gospel? And the answer is an emphatic yes. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you and I hear this over and over and over again to the point where we might think, you know what, it's just not doing it for me anymore. An assumed gospel shortly becomes a distorted gospel and a distorted gospel is a different gospel and it's no gospel at all paul's emphatic notice what paul then says from the text read earlier if you embrace that message you are severed from christ you would be justified by the law you have fallen away from grace Paul uses synonymous parallelism. The two ideas are saying the same thing. And by the way, if I'm in the church and I have believed the gospel and I start toying with this idea that there's something more than Jesus, the threat or warning is this. You have been severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. It should shock us into the importance and primacy of the gospel. Then in chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says concerning these Judaizers, the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. Not only did Paul tear into those preaching this message, but he also went after those who would believe this message. And again, one of the things that we will struggle with is looking at this text in its context and historical text and saying, you know, the Apostle Paul said that if any of these Gentiles or Jews go back to the law and believe that it's, it's in addition to Jesus that they need the law in order to be saved, in order to be sanctified, in order to live the Christian life, Paul says concerning them, let them be accursed. In fact, if you believe that, you will be severed from Christ, you will fall from grace. And, and I recognize, and we'll look at this when we get to chapter 5, but I recognize that that causes a sense of alarm in us. Rightly so. What is Paul inviting and calling us to do? Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. That's what he is calling us to do. Paul saw and heard this idea, and it was so alarming to him that he uses words of war. Think about what the text says to us. Notice chapter 2, verse 4. Yet, because of false brothers, and listen to the language that the Apostle Paul uses. And and you can you can hear and sense the alarm and this call to arms that the apostle Paul brings. Yet because of false brothers, false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. And then Paul says to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. In order that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, for you. We hold fast to what is true. Why? For the next generation of believers. We cannot assume the gospel because an assumed gospel is a distorted gospel. And a distorted gospel is a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. Paul uses words of war, words of betrayal, espionage, stealth, captivity, freedom, and warfare. That's how serious this is. We are indeed free in Christ. Paul called what they were teaching a different gospel. And he uttered a curse on the distorters. Paul would not submit himself to those who would enslave him. When you hear this language, when you start studying the book of Galatians, one of the questions that you have to ask yourself is simply this. Can we know the gospel? Is the gospel a knowable entity? Because the Apostle Paul says any distortion of the gospel, any defection from the gospel is a distortion of the gospel, which is a different gospel And a different gospel is no gospel at all. And if that's what's being preached, let them be accursed. And if that's what you're beginning to believe, you will be severed from Christ and you will fall from grace. Can we know the gospel? All of us here would say with an emphatic voice, yes. The gospel is knowable. And because the gospel is knowable, Paul asks some most penetrating questions. Why have you fallen away? Why are you defecting? Who has bewitched you? Who is hindering you? And you say to yourself, well, do I know the gospel? Do you know that you can't? Do you know that God can? And do you know that Jesus did? That's how simple it is. And that same gospel that gets you in, keeps you in. But there's a threat. There's this Trojan horse. There is this appeal by the serpent. What is this Trojan horse we hear? Well, it looks good, it sounds promising, it makes claims that it's able to grow your church, it promises to increase your gifting. We know how we can get more money out of your people if you just do X, Y, Z. It asserts to make your people serve more, volunteer more, become better disciples of Jesus. It promises to make your people more spiritual, more holy, more obedient, more yada, yada, yada. Name it. And it is just a matter of time before the more Replaces the gospel. You say, well, Pastor Pat, you're overreacting. Was Paul? Was Paul overreacting? There are a lot of good things we can engage in, tons, but we must always guard against making them the gospel. The story of the Trojan horse is well known. First mentioned in the Odyssey, it describes how Greek soldiers were able to take the city of Troy after a fruitless 10-year siege by hiding in a giant horse supposedly left as an offering to the goddess Athena. How many Trojan horses are there out there that look so incredibly appealing? Gifts to the church! And we invite them in with open arms. And what happens? In the embrace... We begin assuming the gospel and that assumption we distort the gospel. And in time we bring a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. In the apostle Paul's day, and we'll see it throughout the study of Galatians, he pits two things against themselves, the works of the law against faith in Christ. And you'd say to yourself, well, what exactly are the works of the law? These Judaizers were inviting these Gentiles back into the law. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. And they were saying that you can't be right with God or maintain that rightness until you do as we say. And Paul says, we'll have none of it. The only way that you can be right with God is to believe and accept that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That he alone is God's answer for our sin and death. And the only way you can maintain your rightness with God is to believe that Jesus and accept him as Messiah and that he is your answer for sin and death. Nothing else can do for you what has already been done for you in Christ. You need nothing else. And to pair the works of the law with faith in Christ, you have a toxic pairing. It's not some innocent thing like eating yellow snow. This thing will kill you. How do I know that? Read Galatians. Because Paul uses the strongest language to remind the people that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But everything that we might do as a church in the absence of Jesus equals nothing. There is no one beside Jesus. He has no equal. And there is nothing beyond Jesus. He has no superior. It is Jesus only. How does Paul tackle the issue? And this is what we will see in our study of Galatians. Galatians has three prominent sections. They're very notable. Chapter 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 14. Paul lays down his authority as to why he can say what he says. He brought the gospel, and that gospel that he brought is to be maintained. 2.15 through chapter 4, Paul gives us the theology behind his thinking. This is the gospel. No man is going to be justified by the works of the law. You are only right with God through faith in Christ. And faith is simply accepting who he is. The storyline of Scripture, this is Jesus. And then in chapters 5 and 6, Paul gives us the implications of that gospel. There is a love we have one for another that is a consequence, a fruit of the gospel. In chapters 2.15 through chapter 4, you have the cause. And in chapters 5 and 6, you have the effect. And we'll explore that relationship between one's justification, one's sanctification, between getting saved and the Christian life, between what God does and then what that looks like in and through the local church. But what is Paul's emphatic point throughout Galatians? It is simply this. An assumed gospel becomes a distorted gospel that results in a different gospel, and such a gospel is no gospel at all. Mike pointed out how the challenge before us is always maintaining the gospel. And why do we need to be reminded of that? Why do we need to live in that? Because our propensity toward defection is constant. Works righteousness is so appealing. Why? Because it's all about us. But think about what's happening here. The gospel is established in Jerusalem with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It rather quickly begins to expand until it covers all the shorelines of the Mediterranean Sea. It's in Asia Minor. It's in the province of Galatia, which is now modern-day Turkey. When you and I pray for the persecuted church, we are praying for the church as it exists within that 1040 window. Turkey is an Islamic state. You say, well, Turkey politically is trying to play well with their Western allies. And I'm saying to you, you're kidding me. That whole region is not Christian. Northern Africa, Hinduism, Buddhism, atheism... Islam, these are not the friends of Christianity. I am not trying to start a war. That war had began in the garden, friends. I'm just telling you there is a war. It's a war against the gospel. The Apostle Paul says that you and I, as the people of God, have to maintain and guard and protect and proclaim the gospel. Because if we relent, we will assume the gospel. And in that assumption, the gospel is going to be distorted. And when it is distorted, it is a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. You and I have a twofold responsibility. We are to protect the gospel. How do we do that? By consistently and persistently proclaiming the gospel. Not just here in this location, but everywhere as we go, proclaim the gospel. That's what we are endeavoring to do, both individually and corporately. We can't simply get in our holy huddle and implode, though we must maintain the gospel, protect it internally. But then we must go out and proclaim it externally. How important is it? We're not a generation away from defection. We're a decade away from defection. And that ought to sober you up to the primary importance of preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Please stand with me as we close in prayer and then I'm going to invite you to come forward and partake of these elements with us as a family of families. Our Father God, as we begin the study of Galatians, may it not just sober us up to the reality of the threat, but may it make us more tenacious in our handling of the gospel. May we recognize that this is something that we must not only protect internally, but then we must go forward and proclaim it externally. Father, you are a sovereign God. You control the movements of nations and... We are confident that there is more behind what's happening in the Middle East and Northern Africa and Asia than our eyes can see. And yet, Father, we have a responsibility. And, Father, may we as a church accept it to protect that gospel. And then may we proclaim that gospel widely. Thank you, Father, for these words. Thank you for Galatians. And now thank you for this visual, these symbols which speak to the gospel